This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, Steve Stebbing reviews Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 and other movies too on what the hell should we watch this weekend, plus the Shift AV Club review of the movie Twister. A very good show, been a long time. It's been 38 years since Live Aid broadcast its concert, well, concerts, to almost half the world. For Flashback Friday, we take a look at the concert's best moments, songs, and some other little nuggets of history from 1985. It's all available for you on the Shift Daily Podcast. This is the Shift Podcast. From downtown Penticton, Steve Stemming is here. What the hell should we watch this weekend? High atop the uh, tallest building in Penticton at a solid four stories. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I that. love Penticton. <laughs> I'm not making fun of Penticton. I love Penticton. Um, how, how's life? How's the uh, interior? It's uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. It's cooled down a bit, so it's, it's bearable. It's muggy, but it's bearable. Ah, uh, yeah, just uh, you know, busy uh, day job stuff and uh, yeah, movie and stuff. Watching movies, yeah, nice. Well, one of the movies you did see this week is where we're actually going to start here. What the hell should we watch mm-hmm. this weekend? SteveStebbing.ca is the website if you want to get in touch with Steve or anything that he gets up to. Let's just get it started because I have a sneaking suspicion by the look on your face when you talk about it. Uh, that it was pretty all right. Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Ethan, what's your objective? What's your ultimate objective? Your life will always matter more to me than my own. Say what you will about Tom Cruise being a weirdo. But his ability to create these movies and the soup, like when he walks around in the, you see the videos of uh, him with crew or the promo, this is what makes him a star. Like he is off mm-hmm. the charts level of star. Um, and, and this is where we get to see him do what he does. Arguably, and yeah, like you said, whatever you think about him as a as a human being and, and Scientology be damned, when it comes to to film and cinema, this he doesn't miss. He never misses. I mean, there are rare misses. There are your uh, the Mummy, which just didn't work, or uh, Vanilla Sky, which people really didn't like, which I really like. There are his movies in his past. Um, but he, he is the king of cinema and his love for it and his reverence for it and his um, ultimate need for it to succeed for all film, uh, small films, indie films, every film. He knows what kind of he has on his shoulders and he knocks it out of the park every time. And this movie is honestly no different. Uh, another incredible masterpiece of action and intrigue all moving like a well-oiled machine where we're talking production stunts cinematography direction story the cast the new cast members like everything is so perfectly put together in this film that i mean you you like i'm salivating for part two already like i'm so into it uh that is a bit of the giveaway the part one part i mean that's a bit of a tell uh spoiler alert Mm -hmm. um and it is, you know, we've seen some of those videos of him, you know, freaking out on set 
and stuff like that. And I don't really take that as, I mean, it's probably not the nicest way to do business, but at the same time, I think it really does show his expectation of professionalism, his expectation of uh, expertise and uh, just being the best and evidence in the movie. Yeah. And I mean, the, the freak out was, oh, I mean, over COVID protocol, the stuff that we saw a video of and heard, you know, stuff about and was kind of the scandal. And yeah, I think it does come from perfectionism. I think it also comes down from the uncertainty of being shut down by people contracting COVID or the, co you know, just being busted on the doing wrong protocols and having production shut down for those reasons. So there is a lot of stake at stake. And plus for Tom Cruise, there is so much more at stake because, I mean, he is so much more than the Uber executive producer in this film. He is so, he is such a puppeteer. Him alongside Christ uh, Christopher McQuarrie, the director and writer of this film, they they are so cohesive at the top of this. So they have so much at stake. Well, and, and he has investors to answer to, and if they get shut yeah, down and absolutely. lose, and it costs money and all those things, I mean, he's he's the he's the man that's got to answer the bell when it does ring over all the business end of it. So I don't blame him. Yep. If I if I had that much money on the line, holy cow, um, remarkable. Okay, Steve Stebbing is here uh, because we were talking about new releases. This is ish. Uh, text comes in says, um, "Is it worth watching the new Transformers?" I liked it. Um, you can get it streaming now. I think it's on. It might already be on Paramount Plus, or it might be just digitally to rent. I thought it was fun, um, but I, I mean, I went into it with a lower bar. But yeah, the last two, Bumblebee and uh, Rise of the Beast, both fun movies, both enjoyable. Some of Pete Davidson's best work is in uh, the new Transformers movie. Honestly. Oh, cool. All right. So, what the hell should we watch this weekend? Speaking of getting into streaming and so much more on Netflix, Quarterback. Why does the NFL have so many rules against hitting quarterbacks? A quarterback throwing a pass is wide open for dangerous hits. An injury to the quarterback can sink a team's entire season. All right, tell us about quarterback. Yeah, this is an interesting one. And it's interesting because I, I consider myself a sports fan, but I, NFL is not really something that I, I'm really that into or watch week to week but presenting it like this following three quarterbacks including the probably the best quarterback in the league right now patrick mahomes um a veteran quarterback with uh kurt cousins on the minnesota vikings and uh kind of like a, a multi-team veteran marcus mariotta and follows them on their journey through the 2022 20, uh, season um, and so you kind of see the personal life, you see the interactions with the teammates and management and everything practices, and then you get into the game and all these quarterbacks are, are, are completely mic'd up and you kind of get the psychology, um, the, the sometimes doubt in their own play. There's the, the strive to win the strive to, uh, reclaim something for, for these veterans and everything. And it, it makes it more human connective and i think that's where this documentary succeeds and i'd honestly watch another season of it all right there you go season of the football or season of the documentary there the documentary yeah the see documentary. what you did there yeah <laughs> i love it um next up on the list on disney plus season five what we do in the shadows What's the old gang been up to? I'm running for comptroller. It's really no surprise, the amount of energy vampires in politics. Check the microphone. My new friend is Jewish. I had no idea they were Jews in New York City. Oh, 
You're becoming very sloppy covering your vampirisms in public. We met the village! Hmm. So, tell us about it. I honestly, I mean, we're se- five seasons into this uh, continuing series off of the documentary uh, by Taika Waititi um, about a household of vampires in Staten Island. Uh, and this is probably one of the funniest shows on television right now. Um, it's a show that I, I'm constantly recommending. Uh, and it's just like top to bottom. The cast is hilarious. Um, it's hard to even describe what makes this film works. Uh, what makes the show work so well. Um, I mean, just the, the absurdity of it being a docu-series about vampires is just hilarious and how they play with that and i mean just colin robinson who's not a a technical vampire but an energy vampire and just (laughs) the idea of that is just so hilarious and how they play with that was great well it is kind of silly to put rules on vampires hey might as well let them be whatever they want to be yeah exactly very cool steve stebbing is here what the hell should we watch this weekend steve loves scary movies and i like funny movies we meet in the middle. Scream six. You got a problem here, guy? Okay, well, that was a lot of sounds. Um, what's yes. the movie like? Uh, basically like almost a year to the date after scream that kind of rebooted everything, the fifth film in the franchise and the first not to be made by, uh, the creator Wes Craven. Um, we get uh, scream out of Woodsboro into the big apple to take Ghostface out of his element and put him in a whole new one. And just from the, the, the story alone and, and following this new group of, of uh, main characters, it makes sense why they rushed this movie so quickly because they kind of it really needs to snug up next to five. So if you're really uh, Jones in for your next Ghostface fix after Scream, I really recommend Scream Six because it's a lot of fun. Um, I'm bummed that Nev Campbell wasn't brought back for this film. I think there was contract problems there, um, pay equality and all that stuff. Um, but they bring back Hayden Panettiere's Kirby Reed, who is a franchise favorite for me. So, uh, yeah, this movie was a total hit. Uh, Nev's busy being a, a Lincoln lawyer ex-wife. Yes, so. right. Um, last but not least on the list, are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. What I feel, I can't say. I've decided I want you to join my secret club. If you want to be in the club, then you have to wear a bra. Oh, do you, you think you need one? Uh, no. Set them free, friend. <laughs> I mean, it's it's so crazy that it took so long for a literary classic that I mean, so many so many people read and and judy bloom's like seminal classic are you there god it's me margaret to make it to the big screen but i think maybe it was a good fortuitous time for it at least in the film storytelling wise because it did terribly box office wise 
But in storytelling, it went to the great hands of Kelly Freeman Craig, who also did The Edge of Seventeen, a, a movie that I absolutely adore. But she handled it with such reverence to the source material. She cast so well around it with Margaret being played by Abby Ryder Fortson, uh, who I hadn't seen before, who just really carries this movie really well. And the mom played by uh, Rachel McAdams, Canadian Rachel McAdams. Uh, she's also so great and so endearing. And this movie is just so winning. And I, I think that honestly, everybody should see it because I think it's really well done and it has such a great message to it. This is the shift podcast. Our movie this week was a windy one, Ryan. It was very windy, and uh, hey, much like a tornado, you know what goes round and round and round? Oh. The tiny wheel. I like that guy. The tiny wheel actually does have movies. It's so cute. No one seems to mind. With an M. And yes, our film to review, as chosen by you, the shift heads, is the 1996, I don't even know what genre to call it, it's Twister. Violent. It terrifies most scientists. But for a new breed, the challenge is saving lives. The research is deadly. The laboratory is nature itself. And potentially, uh, could be a storm that has a... So I had never seen this movie before. I had heard lots about it and knew the Austin Powers joke, Twister, you know, but I'd never seen it. So I had no idea, heard nothing about it. I was expecting it to kind of be like this gritty uh, environmental movie, like the trailer. And it is partially that, but it's also like a weird 90s rom-com movie with a rival storm chaser gang and a weird character like Bill Paxton shows up with his wife and then he's divorcing with papers. his he's looking ex- for divorce yeah, papers with the, yes with the divorce papers and this character his wife is basically us the audience we have no idea how a twister is so her job is to ask questions so that the cast can answer them and then she just leaves halfway through the movie and then we're like okay we know how twisters work that it yeah. and look she knows how to thing. find her way home though just to be clear she does she said that she does she does say that <laughs> and here's the thing there's a lot of filmmaking edits in here that i don't like uh, and the visual effects for the most part are really good aside from the cow which was hilarious that did not hold up well but all in all i still i still enjoy this film i thought it was still pretty fun the the sequences in the twister are really really good and i think it's a all in all pretty solid movie i think it holds up Angel texted in, said, Angel, my favorite parts of Twister were the suck zone, and we got cows. Yeah. Yes, got I cows. laughed really hard. We got cows. With the, with the, the suck zone. Yeah, Philip Seymour oh, Hoffman yeah. is uh, is really good in this movie. He's great in the movie. He actually kind of steals mm-hmm. the show a little bit. Yeah. Um, it's a great movie. It's a nice, simple movie. It, like, There's a lot of the same action over and over again. I mean, there's a lot yes. of shots of flying debris, right? Um, there's just mm-hmm. the debris got bigger. It went from boards to tractors, um, but it's a nice movie. It's just a really nice movie. I mean, it's a heartbreaking daddy issues movie like crazy. Um, and uh, I mean, it, it's worth the watch. I think it still kind of stands the test in time when it comes to the computer graphics. The only thing that got me was 
at the end of the when the tree stumps are sliding towards them and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. I mean, those look terrible, but everything else really kind of stood the test of time. I thought it was, mm-hmm. I thought it was really great. Yeah, I mean, I I have the nostalgia of seeing this film in theaters when it came out. So like immediately, it's it just kind of revives that feeling in me. I love Bill Paxton so much. Helen Hunt is great. Uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman, definitely. Rusty definitely steals a lot of the film. And yet, I mean, Jamie Gertz, uh, who hasn't acted in a long time, as far as I know, is really fun in this movie as the uptight girlfriend that's kind of like thrown into the folds of everything. And yeah, like the every person in it. Um, and it just reminiscent of Jan DeBont being awesome. I mean, Speed, Twister, The Haunting, Tomb Raider. He kind of had a bunch of hits in the in the 90s and he kind of knew what he's doing. He moved from cinematographer to this role and it just kind of works. And I love the ingenuity of Dorothy as well. I, I, I think that's a lot of fun. Yeah. Oh yeah, the 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 tech and the objective was quite mm-hmm. cool. And well, uh cool. I don't know. Did you see the size of the laptop and the cell phone, Ryan? I mean, <laughs> the, yes, I did see that. And I did I had an eyebrow raising moment when it, they finally deploy it and it looks like Christmas lights and then they go, "It's like Christmas." I'm like, "But it's it's not Christmas. We're in Oklahoma during tornado season. Why yeah. is there like a jingle bell happening in the background right now?" <laughs> Other than there was a, a couple little moments like that. I was like, wait, what? So uh, I was excited to see that they're making a sequel right now, directed mm-hmm. by uh, the guy who made a fantastic film called Minari. So I'm hoping that uh, turns out well. It was good. Now here on the shift, um, uh, not Ryan, Steve Stebbing often talks about his young crushes. And uh, I will <laughs> I will uh, admit that what a great reminder of why I had such a crush on Helen Hunt back in the day. Um, <laughs> because, I mean, she, I, I just, she's great. And she's just so great. So I love it. Last word, Steve, got 15 seconds. I, I'll relate to that as well and say my trigger was, I mean, I alluded to it, Jamie Gertz, because I really loved her as star in uh, The Lost Boys, like mm-hmm. an early an early crush of a movie that I probably shouldn't have watched at the time that I watched it at a young right. age. Um, but yeah. This is The Shift Podcast. Through the entire shift program, we have been using music to create a musical breadcrumb to one particular event in history. And I need to salute Glennie from the Schwa, who guessed it. Actually, right off the top, it was weird. I'm going to make a guess without any music crumbs, Glennie says. The date was July 13th, 1985, Live Aid concert. Coincidentally, also my eldest son, Jonathan's birthday. Happy birthday, Jonathan. Happy Dad Day, Glenny. And absolutely, this week was the anniversary of Live Aid. 1985 was the year. 38 years ago. One of the biggest concerts of all time broadcast around the world, Live Aid. That was a multi-venue benefit concert. Mostly we knew about the UK and US versions. There were more. Saturday, the 13th of July, 1985. Music-based fundraising initiatives as well. The original event was organized by Bob Geldof and to raise funds for the relief of the 1983-1985 famine in Ethiopia. 
Now, that movement started with the release of a successful charity single, Do They Know It's Christmas, in December 1984. Perfect ramp-up to the summer concert, but the concerts were truly something special. Live Aid was held simultaneously at Wembley Stadium in London, attended by about 72,000 people. And then in Philadelphia, the John F. Kennedy Stadium, 89,484 people. The bands are tuning up, the carpenters are hammering down, and blood pressures in the music industry are on the rise. I mean, if they get two Telex, there's one for me, one for me, it doesn't matter, but so long as nobody doesn't get any Telex. Live Aid on Saturday at a non-stop concert with a potential world audience of one billion viewers. The world's first transatlantic rock concert cum telethon is just over a day away. 42 of the world's hottest rock groups donating their pricey services to raise millions for African famine victims. Providing, of course, promoters can find enough dressing rooms. Sting and Phil Collins have got a share, and I'm sure they will because they're playing together. By most accounts, it is the biggest, most complicated broadcast in history. 16 hours of live television from two different locations separated by an ocean. At last count, the broadcast will be beamed to 169 countries, which is more than received the Los Angeles Olympics. Can I have also one for Austria? Potentially, we we've, can reach 85% of the world's viewing population, 85% of the television sets in the world. That's a lot of people. There are still bugs to be worked out, egos to be dealt with. Each group has its own equipment, so a revolving stage is being built so two groups can set up and tear down while a third performs. Everything has been run through a computer and color-coded. We have this television running order which dictates things to the minute and a half kind of thing, and that's not rock and roll. Rock and roll never works to the minute and a half. Rock and roll works when they're ready. Rock and roll is just about ready. We've moved mountains in the last six weeks, one producer said, gotten people to do things others told us were impossible, and it's going to work. Steve Croft, CBS News, London. Now, absolutely fascinating show and a big event it was. In fact, it was the largest satellite link-up and television broadcast of all time. Estimated audience of 1.9 billion people, 150 nations watched the live broadcast, nearly 40% of the world's population at the time. Now, in the background, you hear Freddie Mercury there. That was his practice, his warm-up for it. Queen's 21-minute performance, which started at 6.41. We'll talk about that because the minute matters in all of this. It was voted the greatest live performance in the history of rock in a 2005 industry poll, more than 60 artists, journalists, and music industry executives. This is the video that you might have seen before, but maybe not realized exactly what it was. I think most of the world has seen these clips. Freddie Mercury at times led the crowd in unison, refrains and sustained note, ayo. And then they did it, right? It was part of this a cappella playback thing that he was doing as part of the show. It became as the note heard around the world. (laughs) 
That's just so rock and roll, isn't it? Oh, right. So amazing. And there's a theory that that thing he's doing there is actually for himself. It's him doing a little bit of a warm up or a stretch mid performance because he has such massive songs, but then he turned it into something so much more special. It's genius. It is genius. And they had limited time too. Now, all of that, um, synchronicity being the key in hindsight, perhaps maybe it was well-placed the synchronicity of all of that. What a great example for what was happening. It's worth noting that Freddie did not ask the crowd to sing along. They just did it, but it's Freddie Mercury. You do what he says. Um, the band's sixth song set opened with a shortened version of Bohemian Rhapsody and closed with We Are the Champions. According to the BBC's presenter, Steve Hepworth, their performance produced the greatest display of community singing the old stadium had seen and cemented Queen's position as the most loved British group since the Beatles. Now, the cool part about this is that the time matters. Wembley, that show, the sets were longer. They had less artists. In America, they had more. Technology for the day with satellite link-ups was pretty good. They were able to do little bits and pieces, hello, how are you, those kinds of things. But they didn't really do like we would see today, like full around-the-world live broadcast of all the things. In fact, they wouldn't have needed two separate concerts if that were the case. They could have just done a series of concerts back and forth and back and forth. The artists at Wembley were playing... Um, for about 15 minutes, 20 minutes, some of them, about that, right? So some an artist like Spando Ballet, they did three songs. They were about 20 minutes. The turnover from artist to artist was almost instant. Now, you couldn't even do that in today's world because every artist has got their own setup and they've got their own processing and you got to do this, you got to do that. You two played a couple of songs. Dire Straits played a little bit longer too. David Bowie did as well. Now over in America, you need to understand how fast some of these went by. Black Sabbath played for about 12 minutes or so. Ario Speedwagon played for about 15 minutes. Then you had some real shorties in there too. Right. Carlos Santana, imagine him burning through five songs in less than 20 minutes with everything going on. Madonna had Nile Rodgers playing with her. Miss Josie would love this part is the cars. They got to play, too. Like these some of these entire sets were 15, 20 minutes or less. Hall and Oates played for about 20 minutes out of touch. Maneater, get ready. Ain't too proud to beg uh, the way you do the things you do. And my girl. Mick Jagger, t Tina Turner was also one of the, uh, that was one of the highlights of all of it too. Needless to say, Live Aid was a big hit. Such a big hit that people compared it to Woodstock. It definitely is the concert of the century. And since I was a little too young to be going to Woodstock, uh, I certainly am glad to be here in Philadelphia for, for Live Aid. It's uh, better organized than Woodstock and it's helping somebody beside yourself. So it's uh, different. A major difference was Live Aid's high tech look concerts on two continents linked by satellite. The satellite feeds are going back and forth, so not only do we have to stay on our schedule, we have to stay on England's schedule as well. London's Wembley Stadium performers were seen at JFK on gigantic TV screens, while the entire rock telethon was broadcast to over a billion and a half viewers around the globe. Well, it's just an empty space. 
supersonic speeds of the Concorde made it possible for Phil Collins to make appearances on both shores. Now, how cool is that? He played Roxanne, Driven to Tears, Against All Odds, Message in a Bottle, In the Air Tonight, a long, long way to go in every breath you take at 3.18 p.m. in England. Hopped on the Concorde, flew to America with the time changes, which I'm guessing is probably about four hours of benefit in his favor. Then Phil Collins was able to not even play last, but play at 8 p.m. Eastern time in Philadelphia, where he did against all odds and uh, in the air tonight. So <laughs> that'd be a stressful flight, though, wouldn't it? Like, you'd be so jacked up. You'd be like, don't be late, don't be late, don't be late, don't be late. You got to go, you got to go. I think it's cool. It's fascinating. That was KDKA News, um, by the way. Now, Ryan, as a millennial, that was long before your time. But is it um, is it something that you were in front of? Uh, you're a bit of an audiophile way more than most mm-hmm. people. But is it something that you were in front of for any particular reason or or millennials caught on to this? Because I know that my daughter, as a, a Gen Zer, she you know, she loves Queen and she found that on her own because of streaming services. So what was it like for you? Well, I mean, I found a lot of these bands through my parents. Uh, I didn't really know what Live Aid was, but I knew the song. Like, mm. do they know that it's Christmas? But I didn't know it was a relief song for Ethiopia. I just heard it at Christmas, you know, in the early 2000s. Um, but it's cool. There's a lot of uh, jealousy, honestly, with my generation and this, because this doesn't happen anymore. This These kinds of one-off massive shows are so rare and far in between that uh, it's kind of, it, it's looked at almost mythical. And then when Bohemian Rhapsody came out, the movie, the end of the movie is is that concert, right? It's the best part of that entire film is the live aid represented in a movie. And that's the closest I will ever get to being mm-hmm. at a show like that. And I, that there is some extreme jealousy, I got to be honest. Well, there are big festivals today. They have four or five stages, but they're artists that are putting on their own shows. They're all getting paid differently to be there. And this, I, I think the part that's different is the collective willingness to make the world a better place as opposed to today's world, whether it's, you know, pay my fee. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek because even at Woodstock 99, um, and you hear stories of the original Woodstock about people like, you got to pay me or else I don't go up. So there are people that were like that before. But I don't think you could have a day where you had a band like Hall & Oates, you know, go up right after the changeover from Patti LaBelle and then watching some of the Europe stuff and then coming back and and then doing five or six songs and flipping a switch to Mick Jagger and not having to like, it's not my drum kit, right? It Like, I can't imagine that part in today's world. Everyone's picky. Yeah, and it, it, there's pickiness and then there's also the festivals that are happening are the ones that are... Uh, like cemented they're at the same place they're at the same time they're the same time of year with similar artists right these sort of uh, special one-off ones are rare there is a cool one happening this believe it's later this year called power trip it's a one-off in i believe it's in the california desert and it's like metallica iron maiden guns and roses tool judas priest who was replacing originally uh ozzy osbourne uh, like that's a one-off and that's the first one of those that I've seen in a very long time, but that doesn't even come like marginally yeah. close. Why didn't we have something like this during, you know, COVID when the whole world could have used a nice uniting concert 
you know, we weren't, weren't allowed to travel. I mean, they did concerts on TV. Yes. They did. They did some yeah, video connection stuff, and a lot of artists did a good stuff there. But yeah, I, I they could have. But yeah. instead, we got the Imagine song with Celt Godot and all those. That's yeah. what we got instead of yeah, Live true. Aid. Ugh. Now, as we do flashback Friday here, it was 1985 that Live Aid was a thing. It actually was 1984 when it was founded, and then the Christmas song came out. Then the concert itself was 1985, for clarity. But we're celebrating the concert and 1985, so you will continue to hear more songs coming up from those artists here on The Shift. Nobody would have guessed that this story would have been as relevant to 2023 as we thought it would. On September 1st, 1985, the wreck of the RMS Titanic was found off the coast of Newfoundland. Until this photograph, for 73 years, what happened when the Titanic hit bottom had been a mystery. Here, her bow, as it looks today. The railing around it, along which millionaires strolled on its maiden voyage, is still intact. But below, there is a giant bulge where the double steel hull, considered impregnable by its designers, buckled and broke when the ship plunged into the total darkness of a deep ocean canyon. From his research ship, two and a half miles above the liner, the expedition's director, Robert Ballard, described the images historians have waited nearly three quarters of a century to see. Now, um, fascinating. Fast forward to this year and everything that happened with the Titanic. Um, We all know that story. The team discovered that Titanic had, in fact, split apart, probably near or at the surface, before sinking to the seabed, which was not really proven until this um, discovery. The separated bow and stern sections lie about a third of a mile apart uh, in Titanic Canyon off the coast of Newfoundland, which, by the way, just to be clear, was not called Titanic Canyon before they found it. Otherwise, that's the first place they probably would have looked. It's a terrible joke, but it was really good. And it gives you that one. Oh, have you checked Titanic Canyon? Oh, yeah. Didn't think of that. Of course. Another story worth noting, 1985, especially today, was the Barry Tornado. After the one that was in Ottawa and Barhaven today and a couple of weeks ago in Alberta, WGRZ-TV describes how it was possible for all of those storms to develop and then land in Barry. Weather conditions that day were more typical of what you would expect in the southeastern U.S. On that day, a very fast-moving cold front was getting ready to plow through the area with plenty of heat and humidity out ahead of it. But what really gave this cold front its jump was the winds. At the surface, winds were blowing at 30 miles per hour at the Buffalo Airport. 5,000 feet up, though, those winds were accelerating to 60 miles per hour. Up at the jet stream level, those winds were over 115 miles per hour. That change in wind with height is called wind shear, and that shear is what gave the storms enough spin to produce tornadoes throughout the region. Now, if you had watched Twister with us on the AV Club, you would have known that uh, the wind shear and the numbers they were putting out on that movie, it all kind of makes sense now. Um, Now, following the event, 90 people were dead, 281 injured, and close to 1,000 businesses and homes were wiped out. I think it's really important that we talk about weather um, in the past, in today's world. I think that we... Uh, I am not a climate change denier by any means. In fact, I am a, we can be a hell of a lot more responsible than we're being person in this, but this 
constant fear-mongering of climate change is very scary for people. And I think that a lot of people really carry the burden of that, of everything's climate change, everything's scary. It's important to note that there was a tornado today in Barhaven. It's also important to note that there was one in 2019 and 2018. It's important to note that there was an F4 in Alberta on Canada Day. It's also important to note that there, the last EF4 in Alberta was back in Edmonton in the 80s, right? And it's important to note that this storm from Barrie was 1985. Um, it's also important to note that the Live Aid was about the famine in, um, in Ethiopia or down in, in, in Africa, in Ethiopia. And the famine was food related, but it was also weather related because we've gone through all of these things. I'm not diminishing anything, but I think that we also need a really good, clean context that we can discover when we look back in time at some of these stories and realize that some of the inflammatory language and the new names they're giving things to scare the crap out of people, um, some of it's just really, really scary for no reason. So if we could have a, imagine what it'd be like. If we could actually have a really clear look at how it's all changing and how the evidence says, I mean, the trends are changing, and then what would be willing to do about it. I saw a fantastic post today, and I'm going to try to get um, Lily Woodbury back on the shift. She's from Tofino next week because she had a great post about grass. Now, she's from BC, and we weren't talking about weed. We're actually talking about lawns and grass and how when we talk about all of these different things that happen, it's incredibly important that we realize that we will start to care for the environment when we start to let the environment do what it does. We have perfectly manicured lawns that um, in our world today it was just pointed out um, to me today. And I look forward to getting into that conversation next week here on the shift. But it matters when we look back in time, we realize we've been doing a lot of things for a long time here. And um, maybe we don't have to be scared. And maybe coming out of some of these difficult things can be some beautiful things like live aid we've been playing all kinds of songs from live aid and when you cross the 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 storylines of live aid and the biggest songs of the year for 1985 there's not a whole lot different so let's continue with flashback friday here and get this one little story that we had set aside that we didn't have time for before that it's actually a tv commercial as we prep up this uh, music part from the 80s um so ryan loves these old these old cheesy car commercials from the 80s so let's let's run it For the Toyota that's country tough and city smart through stop and go, you'd be asking for Toyota 4Runner. With four-wheel drive and room for five, 4Runner commutes, carries, and conquers all roads. 4Runner, number one in customer satisfaction for two years running. So who's looking out for number one? Toyota. Toyota, who could ask for anything more? Ah, yes, when people got paid to be commercials. A uh, fun fact, from 1984 to 1986, many 4Runners were imported to the U.S. without rear seats. Did not know that. With only two seats, the vehicle could be classified as a truck rather than a sport vehicle and could skirt the higher customs duties placed upon sport and pleasure vehicles. Most had aftermarket seats and seatbelts added by the dealers when they were imported. Kind of the same thing that we go through with uh, some things in the world today. Do you know that... Um, that most sports cars that have those back seats that you could never sit in because even the front seats touch the back seat when they're all the way back. That's for insurance. Yeah, that makes sense because my friend's got a Camaro convertible and I'm 5'7 and I can't fit in the back seat of it. Can't. No. no, like so. you can't even put a, an adult's legs there. 
Uh, but that's because then they get different classifications for insurance. So there you go. Um, little tidbit for you. Okay, music, 1985. Most of the artists are in a whole lot different than they were um, from our previous list chatting about the um, the Live Aid, but there are some fun ones, too. Um, one of the biggest songs of the year, 1985. In fact, George Michael had Careless Whisper at number one, according to Billboard that year, which kind of makes sense. Now, there were some songs that I particularly think are were super awesome. Now, they did um, contribute in their way. For Live Aid. But there was one song that I think that just reminds me of listening to music on cassettes. And it is absolutely this song right here. I'm so glad. I'm so glad. Right? I'm so glad you said this because this, I think, is the best song of the 1980s. And I think this is actually the best album of the entire decade. Really, eh? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, this, Head Over Heels, Mother's Talk, all of it. Now, in 1984, I had a friend that I don't know um, what his name was anymore. Um, I was younger than 10. And I remember he had recorded off of MTV or whatever the music video for this. And I remember where his house is. I can tell you my old neighborhood. I could probably take you there today. Cameron Heights in Port Alberni, BC. And, um, but watch this over and over and over again because every time it came on TV he taped it so he would play his his videotape of it and it would be the same song over and over again have you noticed we're bringing more and more saxophone songs here on the shift I think it's a thing I'm okay with it because you and I both played the saxophone and it's not intentional but you know I'm okay with it there's one particular song that I've never understood why it was popular it's from 1985. It was in the top 40. Oh. When I think of pop music today, you could never get away with this. Hold on. I don't recognize it yet. Oh, you know it. it sounds like a theme to Mario Castle. The Honey Drippers. I actually don't know this song, I don't think. They're like 30 years oh. late, but... The- but they pulled it off. They pulled it off? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would like to... Uh, what's that? Sorry, go ahead. Yeah. I was just going to say that sounded like a like a ripoff of like Paul Simon or something. Yeah. Very good. Um, there were some fun ones. I just want to get this one because it was one of my favorites of the 80s. Right? You used to have the 12-inch of this for in the nightclub. Big harvester lights, pin spots everywhere. Awesome. Um, and then there's this one, which I think is uh, one of the best we have to put out there. That's for sure. Another one that stood that still stands the test of time today. Now, while Shot A uh, is on the list and uh, Smooth Operator is one of my favorite songs of all time, I feel like we should probably just finish this because this way. Because I'm guessing Jono knows a different version of this song. Like the Crazy Frog version. <laughs> hey, I know the Crazy Frog version too. Jono. Yeah. You know it too? Come on. I know Jono from Beverly it. Hills Cop. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Now, yeah. this song was remade a few years ago for all the young kids loved it. What's going on? And even this was like 
dance like <laughs> like hardcore dance happy hardcore back in the day and hardcore today i mean they even missed by that trend by years so anyway yeah thanks for listening to the shift podcast make sure you subscribe rate and review the show and share with anyone you like get it on apple podcast google podcast spotify and curiouscast.ca 